Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we kick off a new mini-series during our study of the book of Matthew that we're calling The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as he kicks off our new series. Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13? We are in week 29, 29, 29 of our year-long study on the life of Jesus as told by Jesus' least likely disciple, uh, the societal and cultural reject named Matthew. Matthew writes a story about Jesus. He shouldn't because uh, nobody really respected him in his world, um, but Jesus uh, meets him. Jesus transforms his life when he's at the bottom, and so he has a story to tell, and he tells it, and we've been walking through it line by line, verse by verse, story by story, and we're now in Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew 13 begins with a story about a farmer who's sowing seeds, the story Jesus tells uh, known as a parable. Uh, The parables are these ancient rabbinical teaching tools. Um, They're used by rabbis in Jesus' day and most notably by our rabbi, Jesus. Uh, And Jesus tells a story about this farmer who goes out sowing um, seeds. Now, this uh, story will kick off a whole chapter of parables. This isn't the only parable. There'll be multiple parables. Um, But today, we're going to skip the parable. So it's a great story, but today we're going to skip it. Um, As brilliant as these stories are, I want to want to help us, um, uh, or at least discover together, uh, what Jesus is doing in telling these stories. So, um, because I th- actually think the thing Jesus is talking about, uh, you'll see the line, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'll tell a story. This idea of the kingdom of heaven is absolutely essential to what Jesus is doing in the world. And so if we don't have a, uh, an understanding of it, we're going to miss kind of the, the punch and the power of his stories, um, these parables. Uh, I'm excited to explore them with you because honestly, uh, the stories themselves have all these like fun cultural, like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but also, I, I just think that they are some of the most relevant stuff um, that we have. And so uh, we will explore our world and these stories and kind of how they overlap beginning next week. Um, but today I want to kind of set, like, what, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. What is this idea about? Um, let me tell you a story to get us there. Uh, in the 16th century, there was an, a, a sculptor named Bernini. Anybody hear Bernini? He did a bunch of famous, um, if, if you're into art and cathedrals, you maybe, uh, if you've been to, to Europe, you maybe stepped into some Bernini's uh, cathedrals. Uh, but one day, the story goes that Bernini was looking for an apprentice. What he realized was as he was getting older, he had all this stuff up here, all these skills and all these talents. But if he didn't teach somebody how to do the stuff, then he was going to die and his legacy would essentially be bricks and stones, but it would not continue on. No one else would know how to do what he's doing. So he had this stuff, but he had not discipled anyone. He had not trained anyone. And so he decided, okay, I got to find an apprentice. I have to, the word we would use is the word disciple. I got to find a student. So we went looking for a student and uh, he went to one of his projects that was being built, a cathedral, and he found a guy who was working on cutting this piece of, the giant piece of limestone, and he approached the guy to try to figure out, do you have what it takes? And so he asked the guy, so what are you you doing? And the guy said, well, clearly I'm chiseling on this limestone. That's what I'm doing. I'm chiseling the limestone. 
Okay, he doesn't have what it takes. So he goes to another guy and he sees him on his hands and his feet and he's working really, really hard. Um, and he asks the guy, so what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? What are you working on? And he says, well, um, I'm shaping this decorative, this decorative footing um, like, so everyone when they walk in will see it and it'll be amazing. And he goes, okay, you, he doesn't have what it takes. Uh, he then sees a guy standing in the doorway um, and he's kind of crouched over the doorway and he asks the guy, what are you, what are you working on? And he says, well, I'm, I'm carving this stone and there's this intricate pattern I'm working on and I'm, I'm trying to carve this, this doorway so when people walk through the doorway, they see the cathedral. Uh, and then, this, then the story goes that Bernini got really depressed um, because he thought, okay, as, as talented and as smart and as gifted as all these, these people are, none of them have what it takes. Finally, he decided, okay, there is somebody who's just sweating and they're working. Um, they're kind of laying the, the base foundation of the whole thing. And, and they're just kind of, it's, it's uh, manual labor. It's, uh, it's essentially labor anyone could do as long as you had a strong back. But they, he saw this guy working. He's the last guy he saw. He's not a stonemason. He's not like an architect. He's just a guy who's like working hard. But he goes up to the guy and he says, tell me, uh, son, what are you doing? And the guy says to him, well, isn't it clear? I'm building a cathedral. And Bernini says, okay, you've got what it takes. You'll be my disciple. Uh, and what I love about the story is the, the reason Bernini saw, what he saw on this guy was that this guy understood that there was something beyond just the, the little task he was involved in. He saw the big picture. There was something bigger that he was doing. Even though uh, you could walk right by this guy and say his job didn't matter, he understood that his job was to build the cathedral. He saw the big picture. And I, I think of the story often as, um, as I, I think about church. And um, like what, I wonder sometimes if we know what we're actually all about. Um, if you're like me, there's many Sundays where you're like, okay, I gotta show up today. I got some stuff to do this afternoon and so I'm gonna go to church. Um, but, but, but why? Like what is all of this about? What is all of life? What is all of your life about? Like what are you, what are you building? Um, I wonder if at time we just need to step back and say, okay, God, give me another vision of something far bigger than myself. Um, because if I just sit and look at like, my day-to-day -day work and even my great weekends or whatever I have planned, I'll, like my soul will dry up if I don't have a bigger vision of this whole thing. Um, now I, I tell you the story, I tell you that, because what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to have this moment with his disciples. He is trying in this moment, um, actually he's been doing it the whole time, as you'll see, um, but he's, He's not, contrary to how we talk about Jesus, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. Jesus came, in the words of Paul, his, one of his first followers, to, to inaugurate a whole new way to be human. Uh, as Paul referred to it as a whole new humanity. Jesus came to give a whole new worldview. Um, this whole new worldview, as we'll explore in future weeks, will replace the entire worldview that existed of his day. It's way bigger than religion, way bigger than just a Sunday thing or a Saturday thing in the Jewish culture. Jesus came to change how we see everything. And the language Jesus uses for the worldview is the language of kingdom. Jesus uses this language of the kingdom, specifically the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give a, a like a, I want to build a foundation for that conversation. And then we're going to get uh, into some really interesting conversation about kind of how the early church did it, but also how, um, what, okay, what was revealed in the last season? And then where do we go from here? And we'll kind of do all that in the next few weeks. But let's, uh, let me give a disclaimer on today. Um, 
we got to build a foundation, and uh, this one is a bit heady. So just going to warn you, we got a Bible study to get at in the next, uh, oh, that clock is a liar. Um, <laughs> we, got, we, got, we got a Bible study. I'll, I'll probably have to cut some stuff, but um, we got a Bible study uh, this morning. I'll do as best I can to keep it as interesting as I can. Um, and I also recognize it's Father's Day, and so my gift my Father's Day gift to myself is I get to go Bible nerd on you and you can't say anything because it's Father's Day and I'm a dad. Uh, and so um, I, want, I want you to see the parables, but I also want you, I, I got to build like a whole biblical foundation. I, I want to build the biblical foundation for what Jesus is doing and kind of um, how it made sense to his world. Uh, specifically, uh, this morning, I want to explore a single question. It's a question Jesus' disciples ask after he tells them the parable. It's found in verse 10. Uh, verse 10. So we'll skip the parable, jump to verse 10. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? That's the question. Jesus, why do you tell these these stories? Like, you're really smart. You do some great miracles. Why the, the stories? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And we'll pause there. Um, Jesus isn't, again, the first rabbi to talk about parables. He's not the first one to tell parables. Uh, It's a common teaching tool used among rabbis. In fact, you can look up. There's uh, lots of different rabbis of Jesus' day who told very similar stories. The point of the parables was often how they started and how they ended. That's what the rabbi is trying to like blow your mind with. But the idea behind the parables that the the rabbi said was that there are some truth that is too big to just tell you. If I were to say to you, um, define love. You're going to say, well, I love. And you're going you're gonna to try to, you're going to do what I'm going to do. You're going to mumble your way through a, a definition of love. And then eventually you're going to tell a story about a father and a son or a mom and her son and, or a daughter and, or of a, of a young couple or an old couple coming together. Like you're, at some point, you're going to do your best to describe it. And then you're going to say, okay, this truth is too big. I need to tell a story. The rabbis referred to the parables as handles for truth. Some truth is too big, it's too powerful, it needs handles. We can't carry it without some kind of a handle. These stories function as handles to the truth. And the truth that Jesus is trying to get at here is, uh, to quote him, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, kingdom of heaven, what, why, uh, So the truth he wants them to see, the big truth is about the kingdom of heaven. Why does this matter? How is the kingdom relevant? We don't live in a kingdom. You may be, probably the closest we get to kingdom is you watched, uh, you know, the little baby, the little prince get, you know, get born and carried out and you you awed and did all, no, just me? No, Uh, you maybe watched the royal wedding and you said, oh, that's, but we don't live in a kingdom. We don't talk about kings and queens and princes. Uh, We live in a, a representative democracy. We talk about presidents and governors and mayors. Uh, we, we live in a totally different world. So why, uh, why this language? First off, uh, this language is, like, why talk about this? It's important to Jesus. This language of the kingdom of heaven is really, really important to Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, if you're just kind of here checking things out, um, we're glad you're here, and you can feel free to say, I don't have to, I don't have to agree with Jesus on this. You don't have to. You're not a Christian. You, you didn't you're not following him. Um, but if you're a Christian, we don't have, uh, we can't, this is the mandate that we try to build God's kingdom. This is what we're supposed to do. Um, and don't take my word for it. Jesus, uh, you may notice that the kingdom is a thing he talks about a lot. In fact, it's the very thing Jesus tells his followers to pray for. When we're to pray, Jesus says, I want you to pray. Remember the Lord's prayer? Our father 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I know I, I still do the Lord's Prayer in ye old English. <laughs> so these and the thys and the thous. Um, that, that's, that's my, ver- okay, that's the King James Version. It's the deepest in me. Um, but you, you know the prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next line? Oh, you speaketh the old English too. Uh, thy kingdom come. And then what? Where? On earth. as is. So the prayer Jesus prayed is, God, would your kingdom come here? God, bring your kingdom here. That's the message. Why does the kingdom matter? Well, apparently it matters to Jesus. It's the prayer he teaches us to pray that we would be part of. Um, but it's not just the prayer. Uh, Jesus seems to be, if you pay attention to Jesus, seems to be a bit obsessed with this idea of the kingdom. Um, this is, uh, Matthew will tell us that this is the sermon that Jesus preaches. Matthew, for instance, Matthew 9 says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. In Mark's gospel, this uh, kingdom, of, kingdom of God in Mark's gospel comes up 15 times. Matthew and Luke, 30 times each, a little bit more than that. Uh, in other words, this is his sermon. If Jesus has a sermon he takes to the road and kind of tours, this is the sermon. The sermon is about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In fact, this is his very first sermon um, in Matthew 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what was the sermon? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven, he says, has come near. That's his sermon. But get this, he's not the only one who preaches this sermon. His cousin John, John the Baptist, you know John? Uh, his cousin John also is preaching this sermon. Uh, listen to these words. A few chapters earlier, Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Same sermon. Word for word, the same sermon. Now, when he says near, I made Matt and Alyssa demonstrate this in Israel. When he says near, the word near in the scriptures is not like near as in like five feet away. It's not even near as in like forehead to forehead. The word near is a, it's actually a marriage term for when a husband and wife come together on wedding night. I didn't make him demonstrate that. that don't go there. Um, <laughs> stop, stop, stop. Um, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's an intimacy that's so close. That's the kingdom of heaven. God's saying is, Jesus is saying, John's saying, his sermon is, God is right here. Right here. Okay, that's the sermon. <laughs> Sorry. God, oh, man. Sorry, online viewers. Um, Jesus and John have the same sermon. And then Jesus says to his disciples, because uh, they're going to they're, they're be given a sermon as well. He says to them, I'm, I'm red. I'm matching the color of my shirt. Um, Jesus says to his disciples, he sent them out to preach the, what's the sermon? The kingdom of God. Uh, and then a little bit later, uh, as, they, as you go out, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Same sermon, same word. Are you with me on this point? Is it a big deal? Is this a sermon? Right? This is a sermon. Uh, and then, um, by the way, uh, Paul, when his life gets captured by Jesus, he sent out as a missionary, and he goes everywhere kind of talking about Jesus, and guess what his sermon is? Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So Jesus preaches the sermon. John preaches the sermon. The disciples preach the sermon. Paul preaches this sermon. Can you agree? Can we agree that the, the sermon matters? This idea of the kingdom of God matters. It's a, it's a very big deal. Here's a confession. Um, I think Christians, 
do a really great job. I'll include myself in this one, Christian preachers, pastors. Um, I think we do a really good job of preaching the king, who is Jesus, as we should. But I don't know that we do a great job of helping communicate his kingdom. Does that make sense? This is the sermon Jesus was obsessed with. In fact, um, Jesus was far more interested in helping people understand the concept of the kingdom than anything else. Uh, He actually spends a lot more time trying to help people understand the kingdom than he even tries to help them understand who he is as the king. Um, I, I think we've missed this. And so what can happen then accidentally is what we try to do then, if we don't have an understanding of the kingdom, is we try to then bring Jesus into our kingdoms, like all of our worldly kingdoms. So our job then becomes, how do I help Jesus get into my kingdoms? Uh, But what we miss is, Jesus never told us to just get Jesus in our kingdoms. Jesus said, I'm replacing your kingdoms with a far bigger kingdom. Does it mean your little kingdoms don't matter? We'll get into that. But Jesus says, I've come to inaugurate a whole new kingdom in which I'm the king. Like a whole new thing is coming. A whole new world is coming. Makes sense. Big deal, Jesus. Okay. Um, now here's the problem with it, uh, is Jesus will, will talk about it, and we, I think the reason we don't talk about it a lot is it's kind of fuzzy. Like, what do you mean when you talk about your kingdom, Jesus? Because we still live here. And so you talk about this coming kingdom, but is it like, is that where, is that like, is the, like, it's just kind of fuzzy. And it, it doesn't help that Jesus often talks about it in parables, which he himself says in that passage, they're kind of hard to understand, right? He talks about a sower who sows seeds. Kingdom of heaven is like that, he says. Or it's like a lady who loses coins and has to search her house for the coins. It's kind of like that, he says. Um, or he says it's like the, somebody who knows that there's treasure in a field, so he sells everything he has so he can go buy the field that, where the treasure is. It's kind of like that, Jesus says. Jesus will tell story after story after story after story about what the kingdom of heaven is like, but he never actually gives a, a straight-up clear definition for what the kingdom of heaven is. Um, this is the best we have. Uh, I think the best definition, literally the best one I've come, up, I've come across is by the late, great Dallas Willard in his book. You've heard me talk about this book. I love this book. Uh, the Divine Conspiracy. He says that God's own kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will where what he wants done is done. The person of God himself and the action of his will are the organizing principles of his kingdom. But everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within the kingdom. The kingdom is among us and is accessible now. It's a great definition. And if you're like me, you read it and you... You know what dogs do when they don't understand? They're like... Like, I read it, I'm like, that's awesome. And what? I don't quite understand it. And what's really interesting about uh, even Dallas Willard is um, he, he even understands in a really concise, brilliant definition, okay, we're gonna have to tell a story. And so he goes on and he says, imagine you visit someone's rather large home and you have gathered in their living room. Then the host says, come head down the hall and turn into the dining room as the great feast has been prepared and is ready. He's trying to explain how the kingdom is here and it's near and it's... What's interesting to me is even Dallas Willard, he tries to give a definition and then he says, you know, I got to tell a story, right? Some truth is so big and so powerful that you cannot define it with logic and reason. You try to get at it with some handles, some parables. That's what Jesus is doing. Try to explain joy. It's hard to do. Try to explain. Um, you You can give a definition for empathy, um, but often you'll, you'll describe something like empathy and then somebody will say, well, okay, so all I have to do is show up and then I have to say those words and I have to give them a hug. And you know, like, well, that's not it because you've had people show up, say those words, give the hug. And some people show up, say the words, give the hug. And like, you know, they get it. 
In other words, other people show up, say the words, give the hug, and you realize, oh, they have no idea. They have no idea what I'm going through. I'm glad they care, but they don't understand. One is empathy, one is not. How do you know? Well, well you tell a story. You explain it with a story. Um, so what is kingdom of heaven? Let's start with what it's not. Uh, okay. Um, what the kingdom of heaven is not. Uh, this is a big deal, so we'll, we'll at least hit this. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is not the place I go after I die. Let that sink in for a second. What Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven is not where you go after you die, okay? He talks about that. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about eternity, uh, but this is not that. Uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is not the place we go after we die. There's, a, there's eternal life. We'll talk about that, which is kind of eternally deep now and eternally deep that later. Uh, but this is not that. When Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, in fact, um, Matthew will refer to this as the kingdom of heaven Mark and Luke, in telling the exact same stories, will refer to it as the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the word heaven, which we associate often with a place, but Matthew will refer to heaven because he's writing to a Jewish audience, and the Jewish people don't want to misuse God's name, and so they'll often sub out the location of God for his name. And so, so as not to confuse, or so as you don't accidentally misuse God's name, put your foot in your mouth, which you've seen, uh, you, you've seen it, um, you, you would sub out, you would say, okay, instead of the kingdom of God, it'll be the kingdom of heaven. So when Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven, Mark and Luke, who are writing to a Gentile audience, know we have to be a little clear so that they don't think about this is where you go after you die. So they say, no, this is something different than that. It's the kingdom of God. Clear? So that's what is not. What is it? Okay, I was going to give myself 20 minutes to go through this. I'm now going to give myself seven. We'll do our best. Um, I got to do an Old Testament, really fast Old Testament survey. I told you I wanted to nerd out. The time doesn't let me. We're going to do our best to nerd out a little bit. Um, The Bible begins with these words. Um, Let's go through the whole Bible in seven minutes. Can we try? Can we try? Okay. And the Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, that's Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, um, I was a, a history major back in my college days and one of the things they tell you um, as a history major is you should often begin with your premise. Like make your thesis statement the first thing you say so that everyone's clear this is what I'm talking about. In many ways, the Bible begins with the premise. This is what the Bible is talking about. So much of the scripture is is in the first few sentences of the the mandate of scripture. And what you have here is you have this word, uh, this this phrase, formless and empty. In the Hebrew is the phrase tohu vabohu. Sounds like a vegan dish. It's not a vegan dish. (laughs) Tohu vabohu, it's literally, you could translate it chaos or wasteland. Chaos. The picture in Genesis 1, we often think of like the, like the world was ex nihilo. That's true. God had to create out of nothing at some point. But uh, Genesis 1 actually says the beginning was chaos. There's watery chaos. And into the chaos, God brings shalom. Now we hear shalom and we think peace. Um, it's not a bad translation. It's just not a full translation. We think peace and we think peace is the absence of conflict. But that's not Shalom. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict. Shalom is the presence of God. 
It's goodness. It's life. It's flourishing. It's not just we're not fighting each other. Rome gave the world that. It's the fullness of life. Genesis 1 sets the mission of God. God, and then, by the way, then you track the first six days and God will bring more and more shalom to the chaos of the world. And then on day six, God creates humanity and God, uh, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all over the earth, over all the creatures that move all along the ground. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves over the ground. So, so God's mission is Take the chaos of the world and bring shalom. And then God creates people and God gives us a job. Our job, God says, all people through Adam and Eve, all people are to, God blesses us and says, your job is to rule. Now that word rule um, is the same word God uses for himself and how he rules us. It means loving care. Take loving care of the creation. Now how well do we do? Not so well, right? Genesis, uh, you get to Genesis 1 and 2 and you see that, okay, we're stumbling through it. Genesis 3, what's often referred to as the fall, uh, Adam and Eve think, we, can, we don't need you, God. We can do it. We want to be like you. And so there's some rebellion against God, uh, that whole story. Uh, things fall apart. Partnering with God and taking the, the chaos and bringing it to shalom, all of a sudden now they're going the wrong direction. They're taking the shalom and kind of returning it to chaos. And then you get to Genesis 4, and now you have the first family. By the way, if you think your kids are messed up, it take, I take some delight in knowing that like, families have been messed up since the beginning, right? Like the, Adam and Eve, the first kids, are literally at each other's necks, literally. And, uh, and so the very first family, there is a murder inside the first family. Cain kills his brother Abel. It's a tragic story. And what you find is by the time you get to Genesis 4, it's going the wrong way. The, the shalom to, or chaos to shalom is actually now, the shalom is returning to chaos. And then you get uh, to Genesis 5 and Genesis 6. And what you discover as you move through the story, uh, more and more and more people are joining together and they're partnering uh, again, against God in the chaos. In Genesis chapter 6, um, we read that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination and thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's a strong sentence. And so then you, out of that, you have the flood story um, and uh, God only finds one righteous person. It's a tragic story. Um, you have the flood story. Coming out of the flood story, uh, we read this word to Noah, um, chapter nine. Then God, tell me if this sounds familiar to you from what we've read. Then God blessed Noah and his son saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does this sound familiar? It's exactly the same command as Adam and Eve. It seems as though the early mission of the church was all people are blessed by God and all people are on the same mission to take the chaos of the world, partner with God in returning the chaos to shalom. Relationship with God, wholeness, fruitfulness. And uh, Adam and Eve and his kids mess up and so he starts again and he starts with Noah. Same mission to Noah and his kids. Take it somewhere. Now, if you know the story, you know where that goes. Uh, it doesn't take long before the people get together and say, if we build a really big tower and it floods again, we'll just be higher by being in a tall tower and we'll win, right? Like the Tower of Babel story happens. It's a wild story. It, it, it falls apart again. 
more, instead of it going from chaos to shalom, it's going from shalom and going to chaos. And so then God flips strategy. I know this is, this is dense and I'm going really fast, but are you following? God flips strategy. Instead of saying to people, I'm going to take uh, all people and you're all my partners in going somewhere, God then flips strategy in Genesis 12. He tries it twice, he flips strategy. And you find that instead of that, God reaches out to a man named Abram. And notice the language that's given to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Sound familiar? I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So instead of all people, your job is to care for all things. Now it's Abraham, you and your kids are chosen. I'm electing you using religious language, I'm predestining you, I'm choosing you so that you can bless everybody. You're blessed to be a blessing. You're blessed so that you can bless. By the way, speaking of religious language, um, maybe you grew up in a church that uses language like election or predestination. And often when we talk about election and predestination, we talk about like, okay, who's chosen to go to somewhere when they die? Um, But in the scriptures, election and predestination. In fact, look up Romans. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans and Ephesians, exactly. God's election and predestination is I'm choosing you to serve. It's not I'm choosing you out of privilege. It's I'm choosing you for service. You're to reflect who I am. And in the early story, you find that these Jewish people understand very quickly they're chosen to look different. I have a friend who's like, do you think, do you think I want to have to leave my hair cut the way I have my hair cut? Do you think I want to wear the tassels? I don't want to wear the tassels. I don't want to have my hair cut. I just believe God said I had to to show the world who he is. Anyway, Genesis 12, God chooses a family. Um, Genesis 26, uh, Abraham has a kid. The question is, will the, the mission continue? And sure enough, God tells Abraham's son Isaac, stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and bless you. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Same mission, same call, jumping ahead. (laughs) Exodus 19, okay, we'll just make this the end, okay. Um, Exodus 19, God's people become enslaved. Uh, They, they, uh, the Egyptians are ruthless in slavery. God raises up a man named Moses, sets the Israelites free, brings them to a desert for some training because they have to unlearn some of the Egyptian ways. And eventually God brings them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and God says something on that mountain that is radical. Here's what he says. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. That's like husband-wife language. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, these people understood what it meant to be a priest. The Egyptians had a lot of priests, but the language is different here. God doesn't say you're going to be a kingdom with priests, but you're going to be a kingdom of priests. By the way, this is the first time the word kingdom is in the Bible um, when referring to God's people. God's 
People were to rule. They were to care for. And now God says, but I'm actually establishing something bigger than just your job. I'm establishing a kingdom. And the kingdom is supposed to look like the kingdom of priests. We discover that as you track through the Bible, um, just throw up this slide for Leviticus, probably the last one, the one with the four points. What you see in Leviticus is the, the priesthood, there was actually a group of people who were set aside to be priests to model it, had four jobs. They were going to put God on display. They were going to help people navigate how they have relationship. They were going to intercede on behalf of others, distribute resources to the needy. Um, God set aside a group of people who were to model to the world who God is. And Jesus comes on the scene. And by the way, they referred to this as a kingdom of priests. And Jesus comes on the scene, and this is what he's obsessed with. He, well, this is his sermon. This is, um, this is what he comes preaching. This is what he tells us to pray. Pray for the kingdom. Build the kingdom. Think about the kingdom. Why? We'll explore that. But perhaps they had the same issue that we have. If we don't get a bigger vision of what's God, what God's doing, we will out of reverence and awe and love for Jesus, we will take Jesus and try to jam him into all of our kingdoms, right? Like, I'll make Jesus uh, bless my whatever plan I have. I'll make Jesus bless whatever I love. If we're not clear and not careful that Jesus is doing something way bigger, way bigger. Remember, this is his accusation against Pilate. What are you building here? Oh, I'm not building it here. I'm building something far bigger. You and I are citizens of a nation, but we're citizens of something far bigger than just a nation. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so our job is to look different, right? That's our job. That's our task. Okay, if you're not a Christian, again, that's not your job. But as a Christian, this is your job. You don't have an option. I don't have an option. Our job is to look different in our world, which means we abide by a different rule set. We have a different law. We'll talk about that. Um, but we're citizens of a bigger kingdom, Notice who Jesus hangs out with again and again and again. He understands his role, right? He understands what he's inaugurating. He hangs out with the, the most rejected, the most hurting, the most broken. We're reading Matthew. Matthew is the least likely person to be following somebody of, of reputation. I think uh, right now in our world, why? So why does this matter? Why does this conversation matter? Um, I think it's possible that we can convince ourselves that what we're doing on a Sunday is, okay, I gotta go to church. <laughs> I, get, I fall for that too. It's easy to forget that we are doing something far bigger than just going to a church or even being part of a church. Paul refers to this as a whole new way to be human. It's a whole new way to view the world that's coming in and it's, it's calling out every small, broken, twisted worldview that exists in our world. If we buy this, if we sell out for this, then everything else aligns around this. Everything else, how we treat others aligns around this. How we view our enemies. Jesus modeled how we view our enemies. He forgave them, right? How we see everyone, everyone we think we're smarter than, better than, cooler than, all of it aligns around this because our one mission then is to put God on display and help others to seek him, to find him. We're citizens of a whole new thing. So um, let's actually, let's wrap where we started. Uh, why does Father's Day matter? Um, why does Mother's Day matter? Why is it important that we as Christians at least pause 
and celebrate these moments and these people in our lives who are trying to get it right. Um, our job, to the best of our ability, is to model what it looks like to do it different. It should sadden you when, uh, when Christians look exactly the same as somebody who's not a Christian. That should sadden you. And so every time we see a counterexample of someone in our world who is stepping out and doing it different, every one of you who is a dad and after a long day and you're tired and your neighbor kids are with your kids and they say, can you throw the ball? And you, everything in you wants to say, I, I don't know. I don't want to throw the ball. I want some me time. But you throw the ball, you bring kingdom. Moms, every time you're stretched way too thin, you have way too much on your plates and you don't have any, any energy left to give anyone else your time and yet that little mouth is looking up at you saying, can, you, can I have a snack? Can I have? And you stop whatever you're doing, the important work you're doing, and you take care of them. You bring kingdom. You model for us kingdom. When we see this lived out, it calls out the small kingdoms. And so um, that was longer than seven minutes. I'm so sorry. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, first, we just need a reverence and an awe for what it is you gave your life for. So Lord, I just pray that uh, in what was a lot of content in a few minutes, Lord, I just pray that you would remind us that what you came preaching and proclaiming was so captivating, so important that you were willing to... um, give your life over for it. Lord, uh, I pray that the message, as we, as we explore it in these parables you told over the next few weeks, Lord, I pray that um, this same conviction would sit in our hearts, that we would be filled with a mix of inspiration, excitement, and conviction for the places that we miss it. And Lord, that you would help us to see opportunity. Um, Lord, help us to see every single person in our world who uh, needs the kingdom of God to come upon them. Would you help us to remind them that the kingdom of heaven is near? And Lord, would you help us to help others find their way back to you? We pray this, Jesus, in your beautiful name. And everybody said, amen. As we've said so many times before, we just wanna say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.